So, stop buying tape. <laughs> At some point, it, it's, you're just sticking tape on tape. It, it doesn't help the cause. Well, I guess it does help Christie's cause. But Carrie Foster says to me, that's Mike the drummer, that's his wife. Carrie Foster, she goes, every time you complain about it, it makes me want to buy more tape. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. Because I, I'm going to tell you, you're going to tape me to this wall. And, and you're going to realize why I understand what a fallen sinner I am. Because I am going to mock you relentlessly. You will go home crying. Your kids are going to cry. What is there? It's so mean. You're never going to want. We're going to thin out element next week. <laughs> it's just going to happen. Because I am not happy about it. I know. I'm like, ah, tape dance. <sighs> I am not responsible. Well, I guess I am responsible for it. I am redeemed for everything that comes out of my mouth next week. <laughs> you not believe what this is doing to me. If you want to, if you are so kind, you can put your tape on backwards on me so things stick to it and not to me. Somebody offered $200 to tape my mouth shut. And I said to Christy, obviously, they don't care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, it's all the laughter you get this morning because my message is serious. Someone for service said, your message is kind of all over the place this morning. I think it follows a great trajectory. But it just set, set your bar low this morning, okay? Set the bar low. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, so you can grab those sermon notes, and there's uh, notes in there that go, kind of go along with the message. And then there's uh, questions on the back. You can ask your friends, your neighbors who didn't show up, uh, your gospel community, and walk through those things. You have a smartphone. You download an app. The app is called Uversion, and there's a place in Uversion called Live. You click on that. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today's message. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? I think the animosity I have this morning all stems from tape day. Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by not buying tape. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, which is not buying tape. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to be transformed, what it means to live lives of grace and truth, uh, that we would be those who understand the great grace given to us and we would extend that to those around us. And because of that, all of our relationships would be transformed because you have first transformed us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 17. You got 16 before this if you missed it. Uh, this is one of the most densely packed sections of Jesus' teaching ever recorded in the scriptures, and it follows a progression. It starts with blessing or beatitudes. And so go, we spent four months just on these blessings and beatitudes. Then it moves into salt and light. Then it moves into righteousness. And today, which is so appropriate with tape day next week, it moves into the idea of anger. And relationships and how that gets played out. And to start this week, i got to go back to where we kind of ended last week. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 20, and I'm going to jump in fast. might scare you a bit how fast we're going. But now, apparently, everybody likes to mock me because I do say I've got a lot to get through. And i got a lot to get through. 
day. So Matthew 5.20 is my preamble. Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are interchangeable. So Jesus talks about this again and again and again. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a gift that is given to God's people, those who trust, surrender, follow, believe in Jesus, that we essentially come under what's called His royal power. He is our King. We come under His power power, we begin to change because we couldn't help but to actually change. And in verse 20, Jesus says, when you come into this kingdom, the righteousness, the quality of your character is so changed that it far exceeds that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And I know if you first read that without hearing what we talked about last week, you're thinking that's a lot of doing. That's like the Home Depot's logo slogan. It's like more doing. And that's not really what it's about. It all comes down to the idea of worship. So let's see if I can explain this a little bit to you, how our worship is to be deeper and longer, and how it's supposed to go into other people's lives so that we worship God. It gets extended out through us in other ways. Uh, A few years ago, there's a magazine called The Atlantic, and they came out with this lead article. And the lead article said this, is your kid a creep? It sold tons of copies. Everyone reads. My kid, yes, my kid's a creep. And this is what it, this is subtitle. It says, "Don't worry. You bought him an education. You bought him a nanny. Now you can buy him a conscience." And it's sad, and it's also a little funny. But the story is about the fact that a lot of parents more and more are concerned that their children are growing up without a conscience. And the magazine kind of traces this title. A lot of parents today treat their kids as God. Whatever they want, they get. Their, their parents aren't parents. They're more like friends, so they don't really want to discipline their kids. And now their kids don't know the difference between right and wrong. And so it talks about how there's this whole emerging section of educators that are called moral educators. And their job is they go out and they're in seminars, and they train parents how to teach their kids moral values. Now, they don't teach the scriptures of the Bible because that's you know, outdated and worthless. You know, so what they do is they're raking in millions, and what happens these kids are never going to change because they're never teaching about true life change in the person of Christ. It's just they're making a bunch of money talking about character and morality and no change. This is ironic because the reason these people are making so much money is that our public schools and a lot of our private schools don't, have one, don't want to have anything to do with teaching morality anymore. Uh, even these seminars, when they run them, they don't like to use that M word. They don't like to use the word morality. You know, because when you talk about morality, all of a sudden people get you know, these visions of repression and narrowness because moral people, oh, they're repressive. And moral people, well, they're narrow. And moral people are, are wimps. They don't really stand up for what they believe. They just kind of hide behind their signs. In these seminars, they will not use the word morality. What they use is the word character. And the word character is a great word. We like the word. You can use the word character. It's great. But they talk to develop how these, all these deep character values, but they're not based, based on God or any type of religion. And the reason for that is we don't really want, or these people don't want your kids to grow up to be fanatics. They don't want them to grow up to be like the Pharisees in the Old Testament. You know, nobody wants a Pharisee because the Pharisees were too moral and they were too religious. So we want our kids kind of moral, just not too moral because we don't want them weird. That's the article, right? And this is always doomed to failure because the wisest people throughout history have always said you cannot have morality without God. It can't be done. Uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Nietzsche, all these people with fairly divergent backgrounds and views, if you know who they are, have all said if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. If there is no God, all we have are matters of taste. There is no morality and there is no immorality. You can do whatever you want if it feels good to you. I can do whatever I want if it feels good to me. You cannot talk about morality or immorality. Now, in the same magazine, there was another article that was about Keith Haring. Uh, Keith Haring was this famous artist back in the 80s. Uh, here's a picture of one of the things that he did. Everybody recognize that? 
right? Oh, yeah, Keith Haring. Okay, great. And every time I see his art, I think, see, kidney gardeners can become famous for their horrible art. That's all they're going to think. Anyway, sadly, uh, Keith Haring died of AIDS in 1990, but the magazine had this article about his biography. And so Keith Haring goes through this Jesus freak stage in his life where he's wearing crosses, puts little fishes on his cars, and his family gets really upset about this. They say, oh, my goodness, he's too religious, he's too moral, he's going off the deep end. Then a couple of years after that, he runs off to New York and gets involved in the gay lifestyle, and then, of course, his family is mad again because he's not moral enough. And so it's just stupid, right? It runs back and forth. Jesus starts with, righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Is he simply talking about morality? No. Thank you. One person. No, that's right. He's not. What he means is the reason the, the scribes and the Pharisees were so harsh and so narrow is not because they were too righteous. It's that they weren't righteous enough. You know, it wasn't because they were too moral. They weren't moral enough. It wasn't because they were too fanatical. It's that they weren't fanatical enough. And what I mean by that is the Pharisees, they were fanatical in a sense they were fanatically zealous. Uh, They were fanatically judgmental. They were fanatically courageous sometimes in how they could be blunt. They were fanatically obedient, but they weren't fanatically humble. And they weren't fanatically sensitive. And they weren't fanatically wise or compassionate or welcoming. And this is kind of like a lot of Christians today. If you see a Christian, you know, it says it's a Christian, but they look a lot like a Pharisee where they're obnoxious and they look like a fanatic. And everybody says, well, they just turn everybody off. The problem is not that that person needs to moderate. That is not what the person needs to do. The problem is not that he needs to get less fanatical. He needs to get more fanatical, and his righteousness needs to exceed the worship of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because this person may think he is living like Jesus, but they're not, because they're only doing it in a couple areas. He's not living like Jesus because he's not fanatically wise, loving, compassionate, or grace-filled. It's not, the goal is not to turn it down, it's to turn it up and actually really follow Jesus in every single area of your life, because that's when life change happens. And, I mean, either you have morality or you have no morality at all. I don't think you have some morality. And when you follow Jesus, you either follow Jesus or you don't. You don't just follow a little bit. And Jesus says, if you belong to my kingdom, then God's going to begin to work a righteousness righteousness in you. It's going to begin to change you. It's a quality of character brought by the Holy Spirit that changes everything, every part of our lives. And that leads into everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is there so Jesus can show us how the righteousness of God, which is not external, it starts in here with the Spirit's change in us. It becomes deep. It becomes, so we become people who begin to live truly in the kingdom of God. There's a righteousness in every single area of life because God develops it in us, and this includes our relationship. So that's where Jesus goes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Murderers will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Ouch. That's really interesting. Do not murder. You know, but I tell you, don't get angry. Anyone who insults his brother. Now, the word insult, it's that word raka. Uh, anyone who says you fool, that's the word moros. The Greek word for idiot is moros. It's where we get our word moron from, so it's really kind of easy to remember. So Jesus says anyone who's angry, who says raka, who says moros, is liable to judgment. Now, we've got to remember, this starts about Jesus talking about relationships and how the kingdom of God, through the Beatitudes, salt and light, righteousness, begins to get played out in our lives. Broken relationships are a huge source of misery for all of us. Almost everybody in here has some sort of broken relationship in their life. If you don't, give it time, you will have one. It just happens. Now, we like to make fun of these all the time. It is what all of our sitcoms on, sitcoms on TV are based upon, is broken relationships and yelling at each other and insulting. 
insulting each other. A few years ago, this book came out called The Most Famous and Best Insults in History. You should all pick it up and read it because it's funny. Uh, but one of them in there, uh, Lady Astor says to Winston Churchill, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. Winston Churchill replies, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. Right? Bazinga, you know? Broken relationships are a great source of comedy for us. Um, Only when you're reading about them. If it's your broken relationship, then it's really not so much fun anymore. Jesus says, my power can bring about a righteousness that transforms those relationships in every single area and every single way. And so what Jesus does is he lays down this principle for our relationships. Timothy Keller says this principle is lovelessness is murder. Lovelessness is murder. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And when Jesus uses the phrase, you've heard that it was said, he's not actually talking about the Old Testament, because when he talks about the Old Testament, he says, it is written. And this, when he says, you've heard that it was said, he's referring to what the religious leaders said about the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's talking about what's called the oral law. Uh, And so he's pointing out here that the religious leaders look at this commandment, thou shalt not murder, and they stop merely at external behavior. Oh, well, you haven't murdered anybody, so then you haven't broken the law, so you're Okay, and Jesus says that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what the law actually means. Because in the scriptures, when God's law is like in a prohibitive form, it always enjoins the opposite. So what that means in in real world is that God says, thou shalt not steal. What that also means is you must be generous. That's the reason why you look through a lot of the Old Testament. You see, whenever somebody is not generous, the Bible usually calls that robbery. And so you see, thou shalt not steal means you should be generous. If you're not generous, you know, you are stealing. And so when you get to the same way, when Jesus says you shall not murder, the opposite is also enjoined in that. What it means is every human being is infinitely valuable. They're made in the image and likeness of God. They can never be treated as an object. They can't be treated as a thing. They can never be used or abused as a means for our own end. And if you do that, then you're not living in the kingdom of God. So he talks about this, and he starts to walk through this, about how people live in the kingdom of God and how you're not living in the kingdom of God if you do one of three things. And the first one he says is if you treat somebody as raka. Now, raka means you nobody. Uh, you could re- literally translate this as, as uh, empty head or, again, you nobody. And that's not actually the kind of thing you say to somebody when you're angry at them today, right? You go, oh, raka, unless you're like from like Boston and like your favorite 80s rock band is playing, you're, oh, it's the rakas. <laughs> okay, okay, I got more of this service than last. Maybe I'll try it next one too. I don't know. Yeah. What Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about hostility. He's talking about indifference. He's saying you're not failing to live in the kingdom of God, you know, just by simply not murdering or by being hostile. He says you're not living in the kingdom of God if you neglect somebody, if you avoid them, if you look through somebody, if you just don't care about people, if you treat that person like they don't actually exist. That's when you're not living in the kingdom of God because indifference is the basic seed of hate. The second thing he says is if you say you moron. Again, that's the word moros. It's probably the only Greek word you will ever remember because it sounds so much like moron, so great, you're a great scholar. Now, why is this so important in Jesus' discourse? Because that's the power of the tongue. That's the power of the tongue. To murder means you also murder somebody's reputation. You gossip about them behind their back. You say things about them. It can also mean to murder somebody's confidence in who God sees them to be. Oh, God can never forgive you for that. Oh, God can't really love you because you did this. Oh, God can't. It's murdering who God sees them to be. And the reason you're doing it is because you're hoping they'll believe you because you have something against them. The third thing he says is when you're angry at your brother. You're like, what? I got a brother. Part of growing up is being angry at my brother. I mean, that's just like one plus one equals two. I mean, I grow up, my brother's like, let's go in the backyard and box. I'll pay you a quarter. He's bigger than me, okay? I'm like, okay. 
going, we got these, I don't know why a mother would do this. She bought us boxing gloves for Christmas. What are boys going to do with those? One of them's going to get beat up. That's what's going to happen. Put them on, go outside. Bam! He never paid me a quarter. He comes to first service. We were talking about this. And he goes, he goes, yeah, I never paid you. And I'm so dumb, I must have done it a hundred times. I'll really pay you a quarter this time. Okay. Boom. You know, every time. I'd go, and so I'm always mad at him, right? I would go, and he'd, he'd always get, like, the cool toys because he was older. And I'd take his toys, and I'd play with them. And I don't know what it is. I touch things, I break them. I, I don't know why. I don't know. Why. You ever, like, take some apart, and you've got, like, all the screws left over? Like, how? Right, where do these go? I don't know. That's me. Always bring So he's always got this anger at me. Is that what Jesus is saying? I'm in danger of the fire of hell because I'm mad at my brother. He's mad at me. No, the word anger here, it literally means to swell up with poison. That's what it means. It's not talking about a flare of temper. He's talking about resentment. Let me see if I can explain. It's going to take you a little trek to get through this. In, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. Okay, he is the chief of sinners. And I read that and I think, well, how could Paul really say that? Paul's planting churches. You know, he, he loves Jesus. How can he say that? You know, because in Paul's day, there were some pretty nasty people running around killing a lot of people. Like today, people murder thousands or just, you know, ten people last week in Isla Vista. How could Paul say, I'm the chief of sinners? Is that exaggeration? Because we know preachers love to exaggerate. They love to be dramatic. Don't buy tape. Okay? We love to be dramatic. You know, I think Paul knew what Jesus was saying. And this is critical to understand the biblical doctrine of sin. Uh, there, there is this old saying, the entire tree is all in the acorn. Everything a tree is going to be is found in its seed. The same can be said of murder and mass murder is in the seed of resentment. You know, mass murder is an acorn of resentment that got fertilized and watered and found a proper environment for germination. I mean, when Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, he realizes that so acutely because Paul used to run around killing Christians because he had huge resentment against them. And he was saved by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I know that everything, everything that is in a mass murderer's heart is also in my heart as well. As well, Paul says the difference between me and them is only one of quantity, not of quality. And this is the same thing that's true for all of us. You know, we all hold resentment. We all hold grudges. We all have somebody that we don't want to go and talk to and make a relationship right. We hold that seed of resentment. It is just one of quantity, not of quality. The difference between you and the worst criminals in the world is just that. And so, as a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never be shocked. Never be shocked at the things that happen in our world. I mean, you can be sickened by crime and awful deeds, but a believer should understand the difference between us and someone else is only one of degree and one of grace. That's all that it is. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, what you have to do in your life is base your self-image on the idea that you are better than these other people, which then begins to breed a little bit of arrogance, which then breeds a little bit of pride, which breeds a little bit of resentment, and then you're back where Jesus talked about. A Christian self-image is based on the free grace of God, not our attainments, not our works. So of all people in the world, those who believe and follow Jesus, we can take an honest look at people around us and have compassion on them and know they're my brother. They're my brother, and I realize that it might be me right there, but God and his mercy just never gave me the chance to fertilize that seed. You could all be a Justin Bieber <laughs> or a Lindsay Lohan. No, quite honestly, you, you given enough time and enough power, you could all turn into a Hitler or a Stalin. You all could. You all could. Jesus says, are you a murderer? And the answer really is, is yes. If you harbor grudges, you're a murderer. If you're indifferent to people, you're a murderer. If you gossip or lash out in in spite, if you think you're better than somebody else, well, if they just lived life the way I did, well, I do it so much better than them, you are a murderer. 
And if you're honest, you know, that could scare you a bit. How can I ever be righteous in God's eyes then? You know, if you feel like that, then the law is actually doing what it's supposed to do. It's making you feel exactly like you're supposed to feel, like you are, like Jesus starts the Beatitudes, like you're poor in spirit. It starts you there so you understand that in humbleness, Jesus saves us. The Bible tells us the law was never a basis on how to get to God. No one gets to God on the basis of being good according to the law. Paul says in Galatians 4, the law is a schoolmaster, and it was meant to lead us to Christ. That's why it's there. The law can show us how to love, but it can never give us the power to love. It just can't do it. Charles Spurgeon once said that a mirror can show you how dirty your face is, but you can't wash your face in it. And that's the law. The law is like a mirror. The law also, though, it can give us hope because when you read it and you understand this law of love that God calls us true, it's not just an arbitrary standard. It's actually based out of the goodness of who God is. The reason Jesus is telling us to be loving like this is because God himself is like that. And that actually can give us a lot of hope because if God himself is like that and he saves us and redeems us and gives us a spirit, then we can begin to walk and live in this kingdom and our lives can change and we can become like that as well as we worship him because he washes us. He gives us strength. The law that leads to Jesus, that is the great miracle. When we become humble, it creates compassion in us. When we're humble, we're compassionate with those around us. We begin to put up with people we would never put up with before. All, I mean, when you're humble, you realize that that dork in your office that you just can't stand, but for the grace of God, that could be you. And maybe some people in your office that feel just that way about you, too. I mean, seriously, you've got to understand this humbleness breeds compassion. You can't feel superior to anybody. If we didn't have contempt, if we didn't feel superior, we really wouldn't have that many bad relationships. And so as soon as we're able to say, you know, God, I am a murderer, just like you said in the Bible. You know, we, be, we begin to soften. We begin to change. The minute we say, I, really, I don't really know how to love anybody, by that admission, your heart begins to melt, and these floodgates open, and love begins to flow. It's, it's amazing. God uses the very admission of our sinfulness to breed love, and the humbling effect of that admission in our lives actually creates in us loving, humble, compassionate people. It's amazing, and it's great, right? That's good news, right? When we admit it, we become humble, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Okay? He keeps going. He goes deeper. And he, I, sometimes I wish he would just stop at one spot, but he doesn't. He just kind of goes. So verse 23 in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. See, so Jesus just doesn't say, Oh, stop gossiping, stop calling people morons, stop your resentment, stop harboring grudges. He says, Now that you understand that in humbleness, now I want you to do something about it. I want you to go, and I want you to start restoring these relationships around you. Because we're not living in the kingdom of God unless when we see relationships decay around us, we try to actually do something about it. Jesus says, if you're worshiping God, and you realize somebody has something against you, you have a broken relationship, the urgency of the matter is that you should leave your gift there and go and make it right. I mean, what Jesus says is, we haven't really started to live in the kingdom of God and love like the kingdom of God calls us to love until we see it as our job to reconcile as far as it depends on us. I mean, sometimes reconciliation is impossible. People do not want to reconcile with you. But as far as it depends on us, we seek reconciliation. And so Matthew 5 says, if someone has something against you, you go to them. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you have something against somebody else, you go to them. Altogether, this means it doesn't matter who started it. It's our responsibility to try and make it right. Matthew chapter 5 says, repent if you know your brother has something against you. Uh, you don't wait for that person to bring it up. You know, it may be something you didn't actually do, but they just perceived that you did. Or maybe it is something that you did. You know? And so you go when there's something wrong and you start to deal with it. Matthew 18 says, if you have something against somebody else, if somebody has irritated you, maybe they don't even know they did it. 
You need to go to them and work it out. You go to that person. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go and forgive. Matthew 5 says repent. It's your job to initiate. Matthew 18 says forgive. It is your job to initiate. And I know people want to turn me off at this point because they think here is an unbelievably idealistic preacher who doesn't know what real life is like. You don't know how hard it is to do this. I know how hard this is to do. Trust me. But seriously, let me ask you a question. Who would you, you rather live like? Would you rather live like Jesus or Satan? Oh, I'd live like Jesus. Yeah, we say that, but we live a lot like Satan a lot of our times. We don't really want to live like Jesus. I mean, Satan is a guy nobody walks on. You watch, Look at our movies. We treat him with a whole lot of respect and fear. You know, he doesn't feed his enemies. He doesn't turn the other cheek. He doesn't go out and love people. You know, he doesn't do anything like that. And everybody treats him with respect. He's not a wimp. I mean, we treat him as a very powerful person. But do you think he is happy or joyful? I don't think so at all. He's always blaming everybody else for his problems. He's eaten up with self-pity. He's got a fiery cancer in the pit of his soul that eats him from the inside out. I mean, God doesn't have to send him to hell. He's already there in his soul. I think that's the way it is for anybody who holds on to anger, who calls people morons. Because that inside of you, that negative, it's just killing you. It destroys you. If you always just have bad things to say about other people, welcome to Satan's club. That's where you are. But you look at Jesus, right? He is someone who has done nothing but eternity, past, and future, forgive all of his children. He came to us in love to save us. He opens his arm wide. What did we do? Shoved a spear through those arms and right into his heart to kill him. And then we laughed at him as he died. What does he do on the cross while we are doing all that? Does he say, that does it. I've done everything I possibly could throughout eternity. This is it. Fry, suckers. That's what I would have done. And like, now you will behold my glory. You have ticked me up one last time. Straw, camel's back, you're done. That's what I would have done. But no, instead he prays, Father, forgive them. After the resurrection, you know, he appears to his disciples in a room. And what does he do? Does he show up and say, okay, grovel a little bit now. You know, maybe I'll forgive you for what you did to me when I was on the cross, when you ran away, when you denied me. Maybe I'll do that. No, he shows up and he says, peace be to you. Those are the words that he says. Who do you want to actually be like in your life? Which is actually more practical? Because Jesus kind of brings this idea together with the idea of living in the kingdom of God is all about worship because when you're humble, that translates out into your relationships and you begin to live like he calls us to live. It all translates to worship. I mean, if you are unwilling to forgive and make up relationships, you are not actually fit for worship. He goes on and says this at the very end. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That sounds like a warning, but it's also a promise. This is what we must understand. Do you believe you are a person freely saved by the grace of God? That you are completely accepted solely upon the grace of God? And if you say yes, then we should actually be living differently. That humbleness should come out of us and in all of our relationships. You'll be able to love. You will be able to let go of anger. You'll be able to let go of the rockiness and the you moronness. Because you understand that when Jesus says that, he is referring to he did pay every last penny for us. He did pay the debt for our sin at the moment of the cross. We need to be people who see ourselves needing that forgiveness. A week and a half ago, I was talking to my dad. My, my dad is not a Christian. And, uh, uh, and he'll tell you that, so it's not a big deal to tell you that. And we're sitting in my backyard talking about this thing, and there was this guy. And something happened to this guy. It had nothing to do with Christianity or anything, and something really good happened to him. And I said, man, that's just grace. That is grace. And my dad goes, and this is their son. He says, he says, that's why I can never become a Christian. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it's something outside of you. 
that is coming and redeeming you and giving your righteousness to you. I mean, I think my dad understands Christianity better than most Christians. And he said, and that's why, and that's why he believes in reincarnation, because he thinks it's inside of him, and he's got to work it out, and he's got to get it right. I mean, and I, and I just, I, I'm like, that has got to be a miserable way to live. I mean, Hinduism is a miserable way to live because you reincarnate and reincarnate trying to get it right. It's all based upon you and what you do. But every time, you screw it up. I mean, so you're going to come back as like a flea or a snail or a gnat, and then you bite people, and that's evil. So you're going to come back even worse. What do you, I don't, you know, Buddhism comes out of Hinduism because Buddhism realized there is no way you could ever get off that reincarnation wheel. And Buddhism is really honest. I mean, American Buddhism isn't because they, they're like, oh, no, it's all light and love. It's not. Buddhism is this idea that all life is pain. That's the basic tenet of Buddhism. And the only way you get off this wheel of reincarnation is you've got to be born a male into the priestly class and live a perfect life. That's the only way. So we're all screwed. All of us. I mean, that's, that's the idea. But, but my dad understands that. My dad understands that better than most Christians do. See, it's a righteousness that comes from outside of us, that is given to us by the grace of a good and loving God. And that is what frees us to actually live a life of humbleness, of grace, and truth. Uh, l- let, me just, l- let me give a very personal example that, that's not... A big, uh, sometimes people make appointments with me. Premarital counseling, marriage counseling, d- different things like that. And so we usually settle on a time like, you know, 2 p.m. on a Thursday. And every time we do that, for some reason, a lot of people think 2 p.m. means about 2 p.m., right? And everybody shows up late, and I'm like, oh, how dare they? It's like half of you in this room, okay? You know, oh, how, how dare you, you know, be late, oh. And then what inevitably happens is right after that, I go out and I'm late to something. And people extend grace to me when I'm late to something. And I think, man, I'm not a little god that people need to appease, They'll be on time, by the way, okay? You know? But it makes me realize, because I haven't given grace, I must extend grace. I mean, how much more so in light of our lives and our salvation, understanding the great grace that Jesus has given to us, how much more does that change us? How does that make us live life differently? I mean, the knowledge that what Jesus has done for us, that should transform all of our relationships. That's what he's saying. I mean, you know where you actually begin to get to practice these things? As soon as we're done this morning, you're going to stand up, and you're going to, like, I don't know, fight somebody for the bathroom, fight somebody out of the parking lot, fight somebody for a cookie. I don't know. So, so, and, and you're going to start to rub against people. You get to practice that right then. Even better, you're going to go home. And if you're married, you get to practice that in your marriage. I mean, some marriages have so many issues because each person wants the other person to see what, understand what's going on, how you have hurt me. And they refuse to go first. It means we go first. You've got someone in your workplace that you've got issues with. What do you do? You go first. You step into it because you have been forgiven. You become humble because you realize what God has done for you. It changes completely how we live our lives because we understand that lovelessness is murder, but grace is life. And this is why God calls us to be people who live in grace. Because he has extended it to us, we become a humble people and we extend that to those around us. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't call somebody on some of their garbage when they, when they do something stupid. I'm not saying that at all, because sometimes in reconciliation, it's like, you know, this is how you hurt me. This is what you did. And you talk about those things. But it's also you understand when you're doing something to somebody else, and they say, this is what you did to me. You don't just blow it off. You go, okay, well, let's talk about that. I'm really sorry. And you begin to work in that, because you have been forgiven. You have been offered grace. The righteousness that you have is an outside righteousness just bespoke, given to you. <laughs> By the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we must remember. Our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness comes to us from 
Christ. Uh, This is where we go to communion every week. It's a place that centers us and reminds us who he was and what he did and what he continues to do in our lives. This is why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we become this people who live in humbleness and grace because of what God has first done for you and I. Um, Is the man in the room, by the way? I'm going to keep looking for him. No? Oh, there they are. My goodness. What's happening? What? Oh, you come on. This happened last service, too. I have a lot of resentment and anger that the band is not on time. They don't listen to me. I guess I got to give them grace. Where am I standing? I'm standing on the side of the thing, Jason. And I'm really going to have to work with this next week with tape day. Seriously, if, if you are someone and you have these grudges and resentment and this anger and you can't get over it, there will be some deacons and elders in the back, and they'd love to pray with you about that. You know, As we sing these songs, uh, let God do a little bit of work in your heart with this. And, and you know, get those relationships that need to be restored, the relationships that need to be reconciled. We should be a people of reconciliation. We should be welcoming because our God welcomed us. This is the idea of where Jesus starts with blessing. Understand who you are. And he goes into you are salt and light. Your righteousness is all about worship. And so when you get to the place of anger, you know, it's okay sometimes to be angry, but your anger cannot turn into resentment. Your anger cannot turn into scorn. Your anger cannot turn into just dismissing people. Because those are all the seeds of murder. And we have been forgiven by a great and good God. And so we live in a way that starts with blessing and ends with understanding who we are in the kingdom of God as his kids. Uh, There's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we give every week. And there is some food and stuff in the back, like I said. Share the cookies. Share the love. Uh, maybe you meet somebody, go out to lunch today, dinner this week, uh, go to a gospel community this week, and talk about some of the questions on the back of the sermon notes. You know, begin to walk through what it means to really learn how to live the way, understanding what Christ has done for us. You know, understanding his goodness and his grace first bestowed upon us, and we bestow that on those around us. Because he has first loved us, we love those around us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be those who understand what it means to live in your grace and your goodness. Uh, to understand who we are without you. That we are essentially murderers. Not just that we've actually killed somebody, but we destroy those around us by how we respond in our anger, by how we respond with our resentment. And yet you start the Sermon on the Mount in a place of blessing understanding that we are poor in spirit and that you have stepped in to our lives and offered us the kingdom of God. And by understanding that, it translates into our relationships. Understand that we are not little gods who need to be appeased. Understand that you are the great God of all creation who has been appeased. So teach us to understand who we are in light of your grace and who we're supposed to live and love alongside of because of your grace. Teach us how to come alongside others around us who are hard to love.
and to be an extension of your holiness and your goodness. So who you are makes more and more sense. As it makes more and more sense to us as we begin to actually live as you call us to. So have us understand the blessedness that is living in your kingdom and the hope that we as your people can bring to the world because we begin to offer grace like our God has first given us grace. Teach us to live in a childlike faith that simply says you are worthy in all things so we have our eyes off ourselves and onto you as our great and good God. And we ask these things in your son's wonderful name.